The Archangel Chronicles. Copyright 2021 by Raymond Collotti. All rights reserved. Chapter 4. Hippos in the Night. And so we began our majestic procession down that great avenue of water, that artery of life in the midst of the barren desert. The Falucca was a typical wooden boat of about 20 feet in length and 8 feet in beam. It had a lanteen sail, which remained furled on a long, graceful wooden boom while we made our trip down the river. While I had never been on the Nile before, I recognized this sailboat from various pictures and travel programs I had seen advertising cruising down the Nile in my own time. The truth is, the size and the shape of the boat, and the way it was rigged, manned by a three-man crew, had not changed much in 2,000 years. The captain was a thin, wiry fellow. He was stripped to the waist, revealing long, sinewy arms and legs. His cotton loincloth contrasted with the copper-toned skin and a shaved head topped with a wide-brimmed straw hat. He stood at the stern of the boat, manning the steering oar, and from time to time quietly gave out orders to his two mates. The other two crewmates manned the oars. We were going downriver against the wind, blowing up the river from the north. But since we were going downriver with the current, although some paddling was necessary, for the most part, the current kept us moving so it wasn't hard work. The oars were being used to keep us in the center of the great river, pointed in the right direction. I had made sure that the trough containing the great fish was stowed below deck out of the sun. I made sure that Abu replaced the water in it with fresh river water from time to time. In between, it was covered with a canvas sail, bound up so no one could look inside. The crew and the captain, who were busy, seemed not to be interested in its contents. The boat was loaded with grain from the town we had just left. The grain was covered by a canvas, providing a comfortable place for me to recline and watched the progress of the voyage up the river and to sleep at night. Sometimes I went to the quarterdeck near the bow and sat looking forward down the river with my back against the mast. After the long period of my incarceration, the simple pleasure 
of voyaging down this great river at a relaxed pace was therapeutic for me. I breathed in the air, filled with the scent of the fields beyond, and felt for the first time that I had truly been delivered from my former bondage. My eyes took in the supple waters, the fields beyond divided by irrigation canals, the black earth along the bank, the vegetable patches of various green, brilliant hues, and began to feel an odd connection with all of us. I was reminded of a line from the 23rd Psalm, buried deep within my memory. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside still waters. He restoreth my soul. As we progressed up the river, we passed scores of other felucas, their triangular lanteen sails fully trimmed and billowing with swan-like grace. The prevailing breezes coming from the north and sweeping up the great river carried them along. Along the riverbank, I saw skinny, bare-chested farmers, with cloth headpieces working the earth beyond the shore, bending, hoeing, hauling. I saw farmers coaxing their cattle into the water to cool them off from the beating sun. I saw dogs wandering up to the river's edge, getting into the water up to their necks to beat the terrible heat. The heat was so intense by the middle of the day that I thought I could cook an egg on the deck. We passed fishermen up to their necks in the water, hauling nets laden with fish, and others clanging metal pots and pans to scare the fish into the nets. We passed many farmers lifting waters with a shadoof, an ancient hand-operated device to irrigate the fields with a long, tapering, nearly horizontal pole mounted like a seesaw with a counterweight. I saw throngs of boys with hoes on their shoulders and girls carrying grain sacks on their heads. I saw women crouching in the sandy shallows with long white robes, scrubbing furiously at their washing. I saw long lines of women walking slowly along the bank road with clay jugs on their heads like a cargo train. Aside from the throngs of people in knots coming and going up and down the riverbanks, along the riverbanks and into the waters, there were flocks of birds of all kinds, sizes and shapes, far more numerous than the people. I saw egrets, Ibises, kingfishers, black and white cranes, insect eaters, and hundreds of pelicans, gliding noiselessly like a skater low across the surface of the water, with wingtips curved down just a few centimeters above the gently rippling waves. I saw pink flamingos with upturned beaks standing along the muddy flats. Here and there, along the riverbanks, were a progression of temples, Massive stone pillars of rose-colored granite rising above the palm trees. At night, the boat was rowed to shore and tucked into the shallows amid the reeds, and we slept on deck. The dome of the sky, so dark before the moon arose late in the night, was awash with sparkling stars, too numerous to count, with the Milky Way spilling its silvery billows of jewels like a tapestry of glowing embers across the sky.
At night, there were the sounds of dogs yipping, donkeys braying, great herons cawing their creaky calls. In the distance, wallowing in the mudflats, incredibly loud came the growling, roaring, squeaking, wheezing, grunting sounds and deep-throated basso laugh of the hippos. In the coolness of the morning, the river steamed gently with its warm mists like veils and twists of white rope lifting off its surface. We progressed three days like this, and I had never felt so peaceful. I reflected that, although I had never been to the Nile before, these scenes were timeless and were not so different even 2,000 years later in my own time. Abu spent much of his time climbing up and down the mast. From time to time, he sought me out and spoke with me about his life, the loss of his mother and father, and Draco's cruelty. He was a bright, resilient, and resourceful lad and asked me many questions. Abu had been born and lived most of his short life within a few miles of Aswan and was too poor and never had the opportunity to take a trip like this up the river. He was fascinated and thrilled. He rigged up a hook and a fishing line, which he found in the boat and tried his luck. The waters were teeming with fish, tilapia, small black catfish, and once he hooked an enormous Nile perch, which surfaced near the boat, at least four feet long, and weighing far too much for Abu to pull it in. The captain and the crew excitedly joined in the effort and struggled for what seemed like an eternity to pull the fish up. Unfortunately, the line finally broke to everyone's disappointment. Each evening, after stopping in the reeds near the river's edge, the charcoal brazier on board was brought to deck and the catch of the day was barbecued. This was an idyllic Huckleberry Finn existence. And so this continued for three days. On the night of the third day, as we lay quietly at anchor near the shore, I awoke, tense, from a fitful sleep. The captain and two of the crew members were sound asleep, but one of them sat in the stern, looking back up the river. He was a skinny wreck of a man, in tattered clothes. I had noticed that this man had a fondness for a kind of leaf, which he constantly chewed, the juices running down the sides of his mouth and staining his bare chest. I asked Abu what this plant was, and he told me it was called cat. I knew that this was an addictive stimulant, which caused euphoria, excitement, and the loss of appetite. No wonder this guy was basically a hopped-up wraith who never seemed to sleep. This evening, though, was a little different. I had a premonition that something was up. I crept up to Abu, who was sleeping nearby, and gently nudged him awake. I held my finger to my lips, pulled him close, 
and whispered in his ear that he should creep up the mast unseen and hide in the furled sail up there and to stay there until I called him. Abu crept away. I laid down and pretended to sleep, keeping an eye on that cat man. It seemed to me that this fellow was even more excited than normal. He anxiously looked back and forth from me, pretending to sleep, and down the river from where we came. In jerky movements, the cat man stood up, sat down, and then stood up again, over and over. The Cairo metal around my neck began to tingle. I saw a black shadow creep aboard. Shivers ran down my spine. The tingling of the metal grew more intense. I felt for the fish knife that lay nearby and waited. The moon was just starting to rise. Somewhere in the distance, I could hear the familiar growling of the hippos in the mudflats. I thought that they seemed to be getting awfully close. I heard the gentle splashing of oars, and in the moonlight I could see a small skiff with three men, two rowing with their backs to the bow, straining at their work, and there, standing at the stern, unmistakable in the moonlight, was the hunchback figure of Draco, that now familiar dark, dark shadow blocking out all light reared up behind him. The metal at my neck was now pulsating heat. I lay motionless as the skiff pulled up to the stern and watched as the cat man helped Draco and one of his stout companions climb aboard our boat. The man pulled out a long curved spatha from the folds of his cloak and took a step forward. The other man stood at the stern and somehow produced a lighted torch its flames illuminating the deck of the felucca, the ripples on the water reflecting the torch like countless sparks. I stood up, clutching the knife in my hand and concealing it behind my back. So this was a trap after all, and I had fallen for it. My thoughts turned to the captain and the other crewmen. Had they been in on it? I looked to where they were sleeping, but they had not stirred and instead remained motionless where they lay on the deck. I could see a dark liquid stain growing on the deck beneath them in the moonlight. I could see that their throats had been cut, no doubt by that cat man. My mind raced. What to do? Nowhere to run or hide. I stood tense and looking for an out. Draco shuffled forward motioning to the torchbearer. They both stood at the edge of the open hold and looked down. Draco motioned the torchbearer to go down into the hold and took the torch from him, holding it high in his left hand, steadying himself by clutching the steering oar. Well now, what have we here? He sneered at me. Taking your treasure, are we? Not willing to share the wealth, are we? There is no treasure, Draco. I said calmly as I could. You've come a long way down the river with your friends for nothing. Well now, Kyrie. Draco knows a liar when he sees one. 
Now you spare us some time by telling us where ye put that treasure box, and maybe we'll leave ye with your lively crew here, he chuckled. But it don't seem they be stirring themselves, do it? Draco looked around and then back to me. Now where's that worthless waif, eh? I'll be taking me property back, you see. Where's that dog of a slave? The man in the hold grunted and cursed. Need help, he huffed. The other beefy fellow with the drawn spatha was now in the hold as well, freehand tugging at the rope around the wooden trough, and together they hefted it to the deck. All three stood around it. Open it up, and let's have a peek before we deal with the kind master here, said Draco. Let's see the treasure in the box that you've been hiding from us. Draco gestured to the man with the spatha to cut the ropes binding the canvas. Draco bent over, holding the torch close to the trough, and put his free hand into the water, all the while keeping his face turned with a sneer toward me. Just before all hell broke loose, I heard a whirling sound. Then everything exploded into a cloud of movement and shouts. The man with the spatha looked up to the top of the mast, just as something hit him in the eye. He screamed, dropped the sword, hands up to his face, blood pouring out from between his fingers, and stumbled backwards over the gunwale and head first into the water. He continued to thrash about wildly in the water, screaming in pain. At the same time, there was a tremendous splash of water from the trough. I looked at Draco. The look on his face rapidly changed to a mixture of astonishment and fear. Draco was yanked under and forward. He dropped the torch and fell into the trough with a blood-curdling scream that echoed in the night. He struggled to stand up with great effort. But Draco's right arm, up to the elbow, was in the mouth of that monstrous catfish. He screamed and screamed, stumbling about, trying to escape that creature on his arm and dragging it with him. He fell over the side of our boat into the water, where he continued writhing about his screams and curses, gurgling in the water. That left Mr. Cat and the torchbearer to deal with. I now brandished the fish knife in my hand and stepped towards the torchbearer. With a look of utter surprise on his face, he stood still, frozen, staring at me and looking at the long fish blade gleaming in the torchlight. There was another whirring sound from overhead, and the fellow's forehead exploded in a torrent of blood. The torch fell from his hands as he dropped like a rock backwards over the gunwale and into the water and made no further sound. I ran over to pick up the torch and turned to the skinny wraith who stood shaking in wide-eyed terror at the stern of the felucca. He screamed and leapt over the stern, landing with a thump in the skiff. He picked up an oar and began paddling madly away, but he didn't get far. The growls, the deep basso gurgling of the hippos were now very close, and as I stood at the stern, torcha held aloft, I saw a herd of them coming forth out of the darkness. Suddenly the skiff was lifted completely out of the water and exploded into a thousand splinters, 
casting its occupant into the gaping maw of a waiting hippo. I turned away as the man's screams stopped, and he was tossed high into the night air and disappeared. Abu deftly climbed down the mast and stood beside me. In one hand he had a leather sling, and in another half a dozen lead balls. I looked at him with amazement. Where did you learn to do that? I said. Watching my uncle's sheep, Abu replied. Well, you'll have to teach me, I laughed. Abu and I went to where Draco had fallen into the water. He was still thrashing about, but his efforts were getting weaker. I could see him twisting and turning, his shouts alternating between gurgled screams and curses as he was pulled underwater again and again by the monstrous fish, which had now swallowed his entire arm. Gradually the thrashing grew weaker, as did the screams and curses, until, with one final shudder, Draco was pulled underwater and did not come up again. That fish sure had a big appetite, Abu said. He devoured Draco the dragon. Abu and I moved to the other side of the boat and peered into the water. The swordman lay floating in the water, face down, and was not moving. As I watched, a long object that looked very much like a log appeared out of the darkness and into the circle of flickering torchlight. It made a beeline toward this body. There was a wild splash as the crocodile clamped its jaws around the torso and pulled this body out of sight into the dark waters. The body of the other henchman, the original torchbearer, had also disappeared. The growls and deep-throated rumbling of the hippos had now reached a fevered pitch. Half a dozen of them appeared in the arc of torchlight, out of the inky darkness, their heads shiny with reflected water and formed up in a row. One of them, a huge specimen, opened its enormous maw, revealing two large and two smaller curved tusks jutting from the lower jaw. I pitched the torch out into the water, over the hippo's heads, and watched as it flared in an arc, illuminating the darkness until it fell hissing into the water. That seemed to calm the hippos, and they left. The soft moonlight and silence returned, punctuated by the sound of a dog barking in the distance. Abu looked at the captain and the crew members lying on the deck. Kirie, he said. What shall we do about them? Treat them with respect. They were innocent of this evil, I replied. Let's wrap up their remains now with this canvas. In the morning, we shall know what to do. Music for Chapter 4 Legends by Ed Records Danger 
by Alexander Vazinin, Way Beyond the Walls by Ed Records. <laughs>